Good evening. New study tonight. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. You know, there are those who would tell you that uh, we don't know that John wrote this epistle. He didn't sign it. Well, he didn't sign his gospel either. But he was pretty well known in the first century church. They all knew who wrote it. And the church named it Ionius A, 1 John. And um, we know John is, at the end of his life, was called the Apostle of Love, who more than anyone else in the New Testament, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, spoke of love and exemplified love. I like what author William MacDonald said with regard to this letter. He said, John's first epistle is like a family photograph album. It describes those who are members of the family of God. Just as children resemble their parents, so God's children have his likeness too. This letter describes the similarities. When a person becomes a child of God, he receives the life of God, eternal life. All who have this life show it in very definite ways. For instance, they acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They love God. They love the children of God. They obey his commandments, and they do not go on sinning. These, then, are some of the hallmarks of eternal life. John wrote this epistle so that all who have these family traits may know that they have eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 13. Yeah, John is very uh, definitive about uh, listing for us the characteristics, the traits of those who are children of God. In fact, he says, look. If you're manifesting these traits on a continuous basis, then you are a child of God. But he goes on to say, if you're not manifesting these traits on a consistent basis, you are not a child of God. I don't really care how much you go to church. I'm throwing that in there, but that was, that's the inference, okay? Uh, you are a child of the devil. So John didn't read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. John is going to be contrasting the children of God with the children of the devil throughout this epistle. Let me just say this. Um, you know, we talk about unbelievers uh, living uh, unrighteous lives. That's what John goes on to say. And Christians, who they live righteous lives. But look, it isn't that unsaved people can't once in a while do a good or a right thing. It's just important to understand that, you know, that uh, there are uh, many unbelievers. Uh, many of them are churchgoers. And um, they practice sin, and once in a while do good. But Christians practice righteousness and once in a while sin. That should be the general pattern. That's what John drives home around chapter 3. It's the, it's the practice. It's not that we as Christians can't ever sin. I mean, John is going to tell us if you say you have no sin, now that you're a Christian, you're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you, Right? It's not that we never sin, it's that we don't live habitually in sin any longer. And if we do sin, we want to get it right. The conviction of God, God doesn't, won't let us as his children uh, be involved in sin and be filled with joy and everything else. The, the, the hand of God, David was miserable for a whole year before he, con he confessed his sin. He said, my, your hand was heavy upon me. I, my, my bones were like the drought of summer. I couldn't sleep. and It was horrible because David was a man who loved the Lord. And God won't let his kids be happy there in sin, nor should he allow us to be 
happy and joyful. So this then becomes John's litmus test for determining if a person knows the Lord. Let me just read a few of the scriptures we'll be studying, but 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4. John says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, Oh, I know the Lord, but doesn't keep his commandments on a consistent basis is the idea. That person is a liar. The truth is not in him. 1 John 2, verses 9 and 10. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Let me just paraphrase what John is saying to those in the church back then, what he was saying to them. If you say you're in the light, in other words, you're a true Christian, but you have hatred in your heart for another Christian, you're deceiving yourself, and you're still in darkness. You're still lost. If you are truly saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, you can't hate the family of God. It just can't happen. Now, this then becomes the litmus test that John, listen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, holds up as the determining factor as to whether or not a person is really a Christian. You can look at 1 John 3, 14. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. The theme of this book is love, and in particular, the love of God's people for one another. We know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death, is still lost. Look, John isn't saying that a true Christian will never have conflict with another Christian. I mean, families fight sometimes. John is talking to those who say they're saved and yet hate other Christians. And remember, back then you had Jews who were professing Christians, Gentiles who were professing Christians, and there were always some in both groups who hated the other group. Kind of like in the Deep South, uh, you know, 50 years ago. How you had Christians in some of these small southern towns, black Christians and white Christians, but a lot of them hated each other. For me, a lot of that was cultural Christianity. Because if a person truly is born again and has the Holy Spirit inside of them, they're not going to hate, I don't care what color their skin is. When you're in Christ, it transcends race, uh, gender, uh, you know, finances. When you see a spirit-filled church, you will see people of different nationalities, different uh, backgrounds, blue collar, white collar, rich, poor, all coming together, worshiping God. Because in Christ, none of that stuff matters. All that matters is Jesus inside of all of us, the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say in 1 John 3, 23, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Think of John 13, uh, 34 and 5. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love each other as I, as I have loved you, that you love one another. 1 John 4 verses 20 and 21 if someone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen how can he love god whom he has not seen and this commandment we have from him from jesus that he who loves god must this is not it's non-negotiable 
He that loves God must love his brother also. The way our love for God is manifested is in the way we love each other. And since in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, verses 4 to 8, when Paul defined love, God's love, he used all verbs. Because love is not a feeling in the eyes of God, it's an action. And therefore, how we love God will be manifest in how we treat one another. And that includes, of course, helping those in need, um, just doing deeds of kindness. Or the body of Christ first starts with the family of God, then works its way out into unbelievers and even our enemies we're commanded to love. But anyone who says they love God and yet hates other Christians, regardless of what church they go to or denomination they belong to, John says, you're a liar. You're deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. That's the litmus test. Now, that's strong language coming from the apostle of love. Uh, But sometimes professing Christians need a kick in the pants instead of constant pats on the back. Boy, today's church, you know, you've got to constantly placate Forget about the penetration of truth. You know, we used to, pastors, I, I think I was born 50 years too late. I would have been much more comfortable, you know, preaching in the 40s, okay, or whatever. Because back then, more pastors just told it like it is than they do today. Today, because there's a real competition to keep people in the seats, in the pews, Uh, A lot of times, pastors feel the need to keep things upbeat and positive, and because they don't want to, you know, step on toes and maybe drive people out of the church, and that's sad. John didn't subscribe to that uh, philosophy of ministry. Um, He just told it like it was, James 2, the other New Testament writers. Of course, they learned it from the Lord Jesus Christ, who was very kind and very uh, gentle at times, but you can read Matthew 23 how he blasted the scribes and the Pharisees eight times. He told them, you, you're hypocrites. And he just blasted their lives, you know, and other places. But John's message, although hard for many to hear, became the strong medicine the early church needed to heal the division that they were experiencing. A simple message for the people of God to just simply love each other. Now, John, in saying this, was no ivory tower theologian. You know, a lot of guys like to tell others how to live as they up in their little ivory tower, you know. They're a professor somewhere in some Bible college, and uh, they, they're not in the trenches, okay? And so it's easy for them to talk about, you know, loving people and so on and so forth. Uh, but John was no ivory tower theologian. He was speaking from experience. John was the last apostle to die, which meant he had to watch many of his closest friends, other Christians, be put to terrible deaths. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down. Um, James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, the Jews hated him. And so he, they dragged him up to the pinnacle of the temple and threw him off. And he hit the pavement, but he wasn't dead, so they rushed there with clubs and finished him off. Some disciples were dragged by horses up and down the Colosseum steps until their brains were dashed out. Others were uh, impaled. And, and had tar poured on them and were set on fire to light Nero's uh, garden and his nightly uh, rides with his chariot. Tradition says that it was Emperor Domitian who sentenced John himself to be boiled in oil. And yet when they threw him in, the oil had no effect on him. 
that just goes to show us that until God's finished with us, we're indestructible. So, you know, Domitian had him banished to the Isle of Patmos, which was simply a rock that jutted up from the Aegean Sea off the coast of Asia Minor. It was a, also served as a Roman penal colony where prisoners were sent to die. But while John was on Patmos, alone, forsaken, isolated, it was there that Jesus Christ visited John and gave him the greatest revelation in the Bible. Written down, he became the book of Revelation. Look, sometimes when we're feeling alone, forsaken and isolated, boy, the devil's hammering on us. You know, God's abandoned you because you're a lousy Christian, you know. And the devil just goes to town, and we start listening to that sometimes, and we're feeling alone and forsaken and isolated and just prone to think God's done with us and um, that this is how it's going to end, you know. This is how my life's going to end. I wonder if John felt that way, you know. I wonder if he felt like God had forsaken him. But you see, God wasn't finished with John. In fact, God allowed the isolation, listen, for the purpose of revelation. And guys, that could exactly be what God has in mind for you. I don't know. You find yourself in a similar place as John did, not literally on the Isle of Patmos, but you know, you can be uh, completely alone in a crowd. You can feel completely cut off and isolated in, in the middle of a crowd. I know there's a lot of Christians who probably feel that way. They feel like everyone is kind of, you know, their closest friends, maybe family for whatever reason, has abandoned them. They don't hear God's voice anymore. They feel like the Lord has abandoned them. They feel so empty inside. But I'll tell you what, as you study the life of John, that's where he was at. And yet God wasn't through with him, and I'm convinced God's not through with you. Somebody has said that, Whenever God wants to raise us to the next level, he first has to pass us through a deep valley. The valley doesn't indicate God's done with us. The valley indicates he's getting ready to lift us. And we have to understand that. I'm convinced that God has that in mind for a lot of people tonight who maybe feel like John might have felt back then. Um, but God is allowing you to feel kind of alone and isolated because he wants you to turn to him. He wants to reveal himself to you in a way you never thought possible. But that only comes when you're going through a very severe trial where everybody else has kind of been taken out of the way and all you have is Jesus Christ. He does that to bring revival to your heart and revelation to your life to lift you to a whole new level of usefulness for him. Look, sometimes when things are going well, let's be honest, we tend to cruise in our walk with God. You know, if we have time to do our devotions, great. If not, we'll do them later, although we usually never do. But when you're really feeling alone and isolated, don't you become desperate to seek the Lord, you know? Pastor Chuck, my pastor, used to use the illustration of how that, you know, we, we get so busy and, you know, and, uh, and we don't really spend time with the Lord. We're throwing little prayers up here and there, but nothing really uh, serious, right? And so sometimes uh, the Lord just, you know, stops talking to us altogether and things start kind of falling apart. 
And then one day something happens and we're just so up against the wall that we, you know, we race up to the bedroom, you know, and hit the floor on our knees, slide halfway across the room. Oh, God, I need you. And the Lord looks down and goes, good to hear from you. I haven't heard from you in a while. How are things going? Sit, let's talk a bit, you know. You know, God sometimes will put us in that position, not because he doesn't love us, because he does love us. And he doesn't want us getting independent from him. That's not going to do anything positive, okay? It's out of these times of desperation and isolation that we seek the Lord with real intensity. And that is when Jesus will come to us and meet us in a way that is fresh and powerful. But we have to get desperate. I was just reading today about a woman, a mom, Christian mom, Three children she has, they're grown, but when they were, uh, when the two of them were in their teens, I think they're in their 20s now, they both decided they were going to become transgender. So the son became a woman and the daughter became a man. And um, because the mom was a conservative Christian, they both severed their relationship with her and told her. Uh, I think it's best if we don't have any more contact. And she said, you know, we had a beautiful upbringing. They had a, you know, we, we, we did things together, went on family vacations. And, and to know that I'm never going to hear my daughter's voice again because she started taking hormone replacement. And once the vocal cords start to change, even if you get off the hormones, your vocal cords never really go back. After the second one, and the third one didn't become transgender, but said that she sided with her brother and sister and basically cut herself off from her mom as well. After the second one, her daughter confessed that she was now thought of herself as a man and was going to eventually go for the operation and so on. This woman went into such a deep depression, she said, I couldn't get out of bed for five days. I couldn't, get, I couldn't even get out of bed. I couldn't even... I felt... I, I, had, I didn't even have a heart to go to church... I couldn't understand why God allowed this. But in that desperate place, the Lord came to her. And he came to her through other sisters in Christ who sat with her and read to her and just were there for her. And finally, she started to come out of this deep pit. And... Um, and the Lord began to give her strength. She's praying for her children. But I would imagine that she has come to know Jesus in a way she never could have if it wasn't for this. Terrible, you know. And the world applauds it, right? She said, you know what? I'm going to call what it is. It is this transgender cult mindset. That's what it is. I've been reading a lot of articles about transgender people who even got sex change operations that are now regret the whole thing. You don't hear about that because that doesn't fit the, you know, what the secular world wants you to hear. The mom said it. My kids are miserable. They're very intelligent. But they're never going to find what they're looking for this way. It's only through Christ. So again, take heart if you're on your own personal Isle of Patmos. Take hope. 
Jesus will reveal himself to you in a way that you didn't expect again or maybe didn't even think possible. Now, after uh, Emperor Domitian died in AD 96, John was allowed to return to Ephesus where he lived out his remaining days uh, in uh, ministry uh, and eventually died and was buried there. But while he was there in semi-retirement, God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had John pen the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So God wasn't finished with John yet. By this time, he was quite elderly, about 100 years old. And he had seen much in his life, been through a lot of heartache. And yet John had a message he wanted to share with the churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And so as an old man, he was taken from church to church. Sometimes he was so weak, they would have to help him up to the platform. Sometimes he just sat in a chair, and the young guys picked him up by the chair and just carried him to the platform. Asuvius, the historian, tells us that when he came into the church, the whole place would break out into applause. They would all say, there's the Apostle John the last living eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And as John was brought in front of the church, everyone would stop talking. You could hear a pin drop, I guess. I, they didn't say that, but I'm, I'm imagining, because they said everyone would just be silent, anxious to hear what this great man of God had to say. And they tell us that his message was always the same. So John would make his way up to the front, and very slow, very elderly, or the guys would carry him up. Everyone got very quiet, wanted to hear what John had to say. It's always the same. My little children love one another. And then he'd walk off, or they'd carry him back. My little children love one another. He went throughout all of Asia Minor preaching that same message. Once when asked by an elder of one of these churches, John, why is it that all you ever that's all you ever tell us why don't you tell us something heavy or profound Vesuvius tells us that John looked at him and said this is the sole command of Christ to love one another he who loves has need of nothing else see John was convinced that the key to walking with God was all wrapped up in the concept of loving people something God taught John firsthand. You see, John wasn't always a loving, kind-hearted man. He and his brother James were notorious hotheads. In fact, they were such hotheads that Jesus himself gave them the name of Boagones, which means sons of thunder. We see an example of their temper in Luke 9. You have to turn to it. Starting with verse 51, it came to pass, when the time had come for him, Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord... Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? So because these people in this particular village didn't want Jesus 
in their village for whatever reason, James and John said, Lord, let us blast these guys, you know? Let us burn them up. Listen to what Jesus told them. Jesus turned and rebuked them, both of them, and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Basically, Jesus said, I haven't come to blast, I've come to bless. <laughs> I haven't come to burn, but to build. Listen again to what Jesus said to James and John. I mean, they had, you know, they were zealous for the Lord, not according to knowledge, but they, were, they had a zeal. Remember, listen to what Jesus said. You don't know what spirit you are of. Now, in chapter 4, verse 8, John tells us that God is love. God is love. As Christians, God the Spirit lives inside of us. The Spirit is God. Therefore, the Spirit is love. That is what spirit we are of. The spirit of life, not death. The spirit of love, not hate. So we can see that this man who was called the apostle of love didn't start out that way. Uh, he was not a lover of men. Actually, earlier in his life, he was a son of thunder. But listen, as he spent time beholding Jesus, looking at Jesus, spending time with Jesus, he began to change. He became a man of love. It wasn't his natural inclination or his human character. It was a total work of the Holy Spirit from within. 2 Corinthians 3.18 For by the Spirit we are conformed day by day into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are gazing at him through the pages of Scripture, if we are fellowshipping with him in our heart as we read the word, that allows the Spirit of God inside of us to transform us from the inside out. It's a supernatural thing. It's not the result of our hard work and determination. The New Testament uses the word transform, right? Greek is metamorphosis. The same thing that happens to a caterpillar when it turns inside out and becomes a butterfly. It's a whole different creature. We start off in life as one creature, but through the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit within us, we are transformed to a brand new creation if we allow God to work. Now remember that the next time you're prone to think, I can't be a person who loves. That's just not in me. Forgive them for what they did to me. I don't have that kind of strength. The same Spirit of God who lived in John and changed him from a hot-headed son of thunder into somebody. Think about this. I imagine John when he was a young guy. In my mind, I don't know it's how my mind works, right? Uh, I just envisioned John, if he were alive today, as a young guy with a, a black leather jacket and a motorcycle and, uh, you know, a tough guy. You know, and he was a son of thunder as a young man, you know. And, boy, he just let people have it. I don't think he took guff from anybody. But can you imagine, after many years of walking with Jesus and being filled with the Spirit, he went from a hot-headed, Lord, can I, we call fire down right now and burn them up, to a, my little children love one another. <laughs> wow. That wasn't a little change. That was a dramatic change, right? The same Spirit who transformed John from a hothead 
to a guy who truly loved people. The same spirit dwells in you and I. And he, he did it for John, he can do it for us. And, and you fill in the blank. Whatever you can't do in your own strength, remember the God who created everything lives inside of you, and there's nothing hard for him. If you will trust him and rely on him by faith to do the impossible, it's not going to happen overnight. But little by little, you'll be transformed into the image of Jesus. And that's why I'm looking forward to studying this epistle, as well as John's gospel on Sunday morning. I just want to, through the verses and the passages, I want to behold Jesus. I want to gaze into the face of Jesus, so that through these verses, we can all become more like him. That goal is to be transformed into his likeness, that we might become disciples of love too. You know, Jesus told us the closer we got to his return, the more the, the love of many would grow cold. I see it in the church, by the way. It's not just the world. I see Christians becoming more unloving, more vindictive, more hurtful, selfish, I think it was John who said, my beloved brethren, these things ought not to be. And the problem is we're looking at everyone but Jesus. we got our eyes on each other. And many Christians are looking to see, well, how come they get to have that God? Why do they get to live there? How come they get to drive that kind of car? And we're, we're looking at each other and, you know, we're not keeping our eyes on Jesus. And whenever you start looking around at everybody else, you're going to start getting critical hearted. You're going to start seeing, um, you know, not a loving attitude, but a, a, a jealous, envious attitude developing. It's all about love. This is what this epistle written by John late in life, this is why he wrote it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. One pastor put it this way, he said, and I quote, Look, as great as it is to be a people who move in missions, as wonderful as it is to be a people who study the word of God, as powerful and great as it is to be a people who are flowing in the things of the Spirit, and as dynamic as it is to be doing the works of ministry, the most important thing we can do above all is to demonstrate God's love to the people of this world, and it starts with the family of God, end quote. As Jesus put it in John 13, 35, by this all will know, all men will know that you are my disciples, you're my kids, by the love you have for one another. And so with that as background, look at verse 1. Very important that we understand the context and background. You're going to really appreciate what John is saying. So 1 John 1, verse 1, John begins, that which was from the beginning. You will notice as we go through 1 John how similar the language is in this epistle as compared with the Gospel of John. Very similar. And that's one of the main reasons scholars believe the same man wrote both. One of these scholars estimates that at least 80% of the verses in 1 John reflect concepts found in the Gospel of John reinforcing the belief that John wrote this epistle after he wrote his gospel. 
and many believe that this epistle dates somewhere between 90 and 95 A.D. John began his gospel with the words, In the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word is a pre-incarnate title for Jesus Christ. You can read Revelation 19, and it talks about Jesus being called the Word. John opens, so he opens his gospel, in the beginning was the word. John opens his first epistle with the words, that which was from the beginning. You see, when John starts his gospel with the words, in the beginning was the word, it immediately takes us back to the first words in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, those are words connected to the creation of the physical universe. But whereas Genesis starts with the physical creation and moves forward in time, first day, second day, and then beyond, John begins his gospel back before time and the physical universe existed to teach about the pre-existence of Christ to the creation. When John says in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, he uses the imperfect of the Greek word emi, which expresses the idea of continuous, timeless existence. In the beginning was, emi, the word, continuous, timeless existence. This is in contrast to the word for was in verse 3, which said all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. That's the Greek word agenita. And it means to come into existence or to begin to be. So John is telling us up front, the Word is the creator of all things. He never had a beginning. He'll never have an end. He is eternal. Whereas the creation at one point was brought into existence. In Genesis, we are told that God created everything with the word of his power. The Hebrew is bara, which means to bring into existence something out of nothing. We can be creative, quote-unquote, assembling existing materials, but God is the only being who can make something out of nothing. It was so important to John to start off his gospel that way. It was important to him that we understand that Jesus Christ, the Word, has always existed, and that he had no beginning. He's not a created being. It's so important to him to stress this, that in the opening sentences of his gospel, he leaves out the definite article. Now hang with me. He leaves out the definite article. And so instead of verse 1 reading, in the beginning was the word, and verse 2 reading, he was in the beginning with God, it actually reads in the Greek, in beginning was the word, and he was in beginning with God. He also does this to open up his first epistle. That which was from, not the beginning, but that which was from beginning. By leaving out the definite article, John is telling us that he doesn't have a definite beginning in mind when he talks about Christ's existence. Look, if John had used the definite article, we might be misled into thinking he was referring to the beginning spoken of in Genesis 1, verse 1. The beginning when everything in the physical universe was created. 
And that might have led us to believe that Jesus himself had a beginning at the same time as the physical creation, which, of course, would make him a created being and not the eternal creator of all things. John 1, 3, For by him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that was made. The doctrine that teaches that Jesus Christ was a created being is known as Arianism. Arianism. And uh, that is the particular doctrine the Jehovah's Witnesses have embraced. They believe Jesus Christ was the first created act of Jehovah God. Jehovah is Almighty God. Jesus is a mighty God, but not as mighty as Almighty Jehovah God. That Jesus was the first creative act of Jehovah God. And then, then Jesus created everything else. That's not what the Bible teaches. If it says of Jesus Christ, which John does... All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. If all things were made by him, then he himself couldn't have been made. That's a pretty important doctrine. That's why I'm spending a little extra time on it. I mean, in today's church, doctrine is almost a, 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 an imposition to sit and listen to. Just tell me what I need to feel better. Well, how about you get your doctrine nailed down? And maybe you will start feeling better. Ignorance does not make you feel better. Maybe for a little bit. I mean, like eating cotton candy, you get a little sugar rush if you're always being told what you want to hear. Nothing that you'd be able to live on, though. And so in an effort, guys, to teach, listen, the eternality of Christ or his preexistence to the physical creation, John leaves out the definite article and just begins his gospel with the words, in beginning was the word, and his first epistle with that which was from beginning, which immediately begs the question, what beginning? And that's John's point. It doesn't matter. In other words, it doesn't matter what beginning you choose. Pick any beginning you want. Christ always existed. He already existed. I mean, as far back as you want to go, before the physical creation, 1,000 years, 10,000 years, 10 billion years, 10 trillion years, no matter how far back into eternity past your beginning begins, the Word already was. So John wants us to be clear that the Word of God, Jesus Christ, already existed before everything was created. Why is that such an important point for John to communicate to us? Well, it's important because as he starts off his gospel by affirming the uh, eternality or the eternalness of Christ, that he's God, he does that because he wants to upfront establish that Jesus Christ as the Messiah was no mere man. And it's important that John stress that, and that's why he is presenting right up front the divinity of Christ by first of all talking about the pre-existence of Christ to the creation of the, of the material universe, or in other words, again, the eternality of Jesus Christ. Um, he also, though, in his first epistle, touches on that, but that's not his main point that he wants to get across. In verse 2 of 1 John 1, he does mention Christ's divinity. That which is in the beginning, right? The life, verse 2, was manifested... And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life. He's talking about Jesus Christ, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. 
He calls Jesus the life. Jesus is life, of course. The life was manifested. And we have seen him bear witness and declare to you that eternal life. Jesus Christ is eternal. He had no beginning, he'll have no end. So he does touch on the deity of Christ. But really, as we study John's first epistle, John is coming against primarily the first heresy the church faced. And listen to me. The first heresy the church faced was not against Christ's divinity. It was against his humanity. It's interesting. To, you know, we, we're often fighting for the divinity of Christ. The first heresy the church dealt with was not coming against Christ's divinity. It was against his humanity. It was a heresy that had its roots in Gnosticism. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. But for the Gnostic, they prided themselves in esoteric, mystical knowledge. And the Gnostics were always teaching people that if they meditated a certain way, or they chanted the right way, or they fasted long enough, or uh, one of a number of methodologies that they kept pushing. If you did these things, and people like when you give them things they can do, right? It appeals to people. Hey, uh, I like that, uh, you know, uh, if I do this, then God has to do that. See, and they, people like that. I mean, Gnosticism, and everybody wants to think they're a little deeper than the next guy, uh, a little deeper in their thinking and understanding of, of, of these deep mysteries, right? So Gnosticism spread like wildfire. And, but they were always telling people, look, if you follow our methods, if you, uh, if you, you know, um, meditate a certain way and uh, chant the right way, then listen, all the secret treasures of hidden spiritual wisdom and knowledge will be unlocked to you. That was how they sold it, all right? Everyone wants to feel that if I do certain things, I'm going to have deeper insights. I'm going to be more, you know, uh, in tune with the spiritual truths of the universe kind of thing. Now, part of the teachings of Gnosticism grew out of, of the philosophical question, why is there evil in the world if creation was made by a holy God? And these philosophers, these, these Gnostics, pondered that question. And they came to the false conclusion that matter, the physical universe, was evil. And since matter was evil, it couldn't have been the creation of a holy God. So then, where did the material universe come from? Well, they, they posited uh, an explanation. And I'll, I'll try to make it as simple as possible. But the Gnostics, they speculated that this holy, all-powerful deity created an, an emanation. Some call it a, an aeon or a spirit or an angel. We'll just call it an emanation, okay? That God Almighty created this emanation. It was a being of some kind. And this emanation created a, another emanation. And that emanation, another emanation. And it kept going until these emanations got so far removed from God Almighty that the last one created everything so that it was so far removed from God it didn't affect him. It didn't corrupt him. Yet he was still involved in some way because these emanations came from him. 
and they had his power, but he didn't directly work to create the material universe. One of these emanations did, and that's how everything came about. Now, the real problem with the teaching that matter is evil, from a doctrinal standpoint, was the way they applied it to Jesus Christ. And, and we're just going to get through this, and we'll close, because I want you to, this, this, we have to lay the groundwork. If you don't have the cultural context for what John is talking about, you're not going to fully understand or appreciate where he's coming from, okay? You say, well, so what if the Gnostics believe that God created an emanation, then that one created an emanation, you know, you got all these different emanations that went down, who knows how many, you know, and then the last one created the material, who cares? Well, the real problem, with the teaching that matter is evil from a doctrinal standpoint, was in the way they applied it to Jesus Christ. You see, the Gnostics reasoned that if matter was evil, well, then Jesus couldn't have come in the flesh because then he would have been evil. And so many Gnostics claimed that he must have come as a spirit, not as a physical flesh and blood man. Now, that was a denial of his humanity, his humanity. And that's why the Apostle John opened his first epistle with the words, that which was from the beginning, listen, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and listen, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Just stop there. Now you understand why he's saying that. He's telling us, no, Jesus Christ was not a phantom. He was not a ghost. He was not a spirit. He was a flesh and blood human being. Of course, we know doctrinally that since a man blew it for the human race, Adam, a man had to redeem the human race. It had to be a kinsman redeemer, one of us. And yet, of course, everyone born of Adam is born with original sin. Sinners can't die for sinners. We talked about this Good Friday. And that's why Jesus had an earthly mother. He received his humanity from Mary but he didn't have an earthly father because sin passed from the father to the children. His father was God the Father. So by virtue of the virgin birth, the Lord Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. Born of Mary, but the seed of God had been implanted in her womb. He was born sinless. Of course, he lived a sinless life and went to the cross as the sinless Lamb of God who alone could die for us and take away the sin of the world. So when John opens up by saying, no, 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 we, we, we saw him, we heard him, we, we touched him, we gave him hugs. He said that because he was trying to refute Gnostic teaching about Jesus not coming in a physical body. I will have you turn to a couple of these. 1 John 4. Because John mentions this throughout his epistles. 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3. You'll hear it come through right here. This is how we know if we have the Spirit of God. There's a lot of false prophets running around, a lot more in the church. But John said, this is how we're going to know if a person really has the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that he has come in a real flesh and blood body, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed 
is already here. Turn quickly to 2 John, verse 7. I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real flesh and blood body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, let me just throw this out real quickly and we'll close. There were a lot of Gnostics back then who just couldn't buy into the doctrine that Christ was a spirit. I mean, too many people had seen him and touched him, and so they, they just they, they, they didn't buy that. They did believe he had a physical body. But here's the thing. They still believe the physical universe and all material things, physical material things, were evil, and that God cannot be evil. So therefore, if Jesus did have a physical body, which they, many of them believe he did, then he couldn't be God. See? So, the, so Gnosticism, to a lesser degree, did attack the divinity of Christ. But primarily, it was the humanity. And, and because they, they said, well, okay, no, he did have a physical body. I mean, I got a cousin you know, and, and, and over there in Jerusalem, and, and, you know, and they were walking down the street, and there he was, and he bumped into him. He had a physical body, okay? Can't deny that, too many witnesses. But okay, but if he did have a physical body, physical universe is evil, God cannot be evil, therefore he can't be God. That was the denial of his divinity. That's why Paul said in Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, verse 9, for in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So the New Testament affirms that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. The hypostolic union, what the theologians call it. Not just 50% God and 50% man. He was fully God, fully man. I don't get that. How is that possible? Well, it's a lot of things about God we don't get. Uh, you know. He's given us as much as we can handle, okay? And a lot of that we don't get, okay? I mean, you know, uh, I was, one of the commentators was reading how that, um, try to figure out the Trinity. We don't believe in three gods, even. We believe in one God manifest in three separate and distinct persons. He said, ponder that for a while and you'll lose your mind. Deny it, you'll lose your soul. So these doctrines are no little thing. Jesus said, John, what, 824? We'll study it uh, maybe this Sunday. You know, that um, if you don't believe that I am God, and he uses ego and me, I am. If you don't believe I'm the great I am, you're going to die in your sins. Doctrine is not a little thing. That's why we spend a lot of time and sometimes people are like, why do we have to spend so much time on this? Because you're living at a time when spiritual deception is ramping up like never before. And if you don't know the truth really well, you're going to get sucked into some of this garbage. Some of it's very blatant and not going to trip folks like you, who I think are pretty mature and sophisticated in your, in your walk and in your faith. But it can even get to us. if we're Some of it's so subtle. If you don't know, the scripture and what the Bible actually teaches, what the doctrines, uh, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith are, you're, you're going to get sucked in. And um, 
I don't believe you'll lose your salvation, but you'll definitely lose your fruitfulness. He'll, he'll neutralize you and take you out of the race, okay? So guys, the, Gnostics, the Gnostic heresy denied the Lord's humanity and to a lesser degree his divinity, which then became a major point of refutation by the writers of the New Testament. They were always going after false doctrine. They were always coming. Don't forget, they were writing to real Christians, real churches, who were under attack by real enemies. The devil's got his people everywhere. He tries to sow them into the church, right? The tares. Look, if, you ha if, if somebody comes into this church, and here's what happens, and we'll, we'll close. And they're so nice, and they're so sweet, and they're so friendly. Some of you have experienced this. And, hey, after a few weeks, hey, they get to know you a little bit, and let's go out to lunch, or let's come over to my house. We'll, you know, we'll have dinner or something. And then subtly they begin to parade out some of these doctrines. Be careful. Be on guard. And you know what? Tell them, look, that is not what the Bible teaches, and I can't stay here any longer. If you're going to teach false doctrine, I can't stay. Well, but I want to kind of help them to see the light. Well, you better make sure God's in that. Okay? I, I would incline, be inclined to tell you, get out of there. Just run. I, I had a pastor friend of mine, great guy, naive. He's not in ministry anymore. What he did was... He had a group, a small group of people that were members of a cult. Now, he knew they were involved in a cult. And he let them stay in his church because he thought, if I just keep teaching the word, they will see the light and they'll come over to the truth. You know what happened? Because he let them stay in his church, they wound up turning most of the people in his church away from the truth. And they all left the church. That's why God gives to churches shepherds. We are not to let. What shepherd says to the wolves? Oh, come on in. Come on in. We think by hanging out with the sheep, you'll become one of us. No, they'll just devour the sheep. But this is the naivete we have in the church today. You know, uh, half the church doesn't even want to talk about doctrine. It's divisive. Doctrine divides. Let's keep it positive. Let's keep it upbeat, right? Well, if you're going to teach the Word of God, it's called the sword of the Spirit. A sword divides. Truth from error, right? Part of what it is to have a sword is to cut. The Word of God is, is the sword of the Spirit. And you know what? It's not wrong to use it in such a way that it divides truth from error, the spiritual from the soulish, you know, so that's what we're all about, teaching God's word. Uh, next week we will get in now, and you'll, you'll find as we go in, uh, launch into 1 John, how similar. Well, the same man wrote the Gospel of John and 1 John. So the same themes that he, and we've been studying John's Gospel for a while, many of the same themes he brings up in his epistle, but he amplifies. That's why 1 John is such a blessing. He amplifies a lot of stuff. Gives you a lot more than maybe Jesus said in the gospel, but John is amplifying it. And wow, you're getting insights into things 
you didn't get from his gospel. And so we'll look at that as we go. So, Father, we thank you for our time in your word tonight, Lord, and pray that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. Lord, we need grace. Error is rampant. Deception is on the rise. Lord, give us grace to be men and women of the word, of truth, light, that we would bathe in it, that we would walk in it, that we would feed upon it, and that, Lord, we would realize that the darkness wants to extinguish the light. Give us grace to let our light so shine that the devil can't extinguish the light that is burning brightly in us because it's being fed by the Holy Spirit. As we feed on the Word, it grows brighter and brighter. So, Lord, give us grace and bless this time in, in this epistle. So many incredible, important things John uh, wants to say to us that you want to say to us through the Apostle John. Give us grace, Lord, to feed on it and uh, to take it to heart and to grow thereby. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.